Let's uh, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we work our way uh, through the book of 2 Timothy. We are, uh, we're up to chapter 3, and turn with me there. It's in your outline, you can just turn in your Bibles, and uh, that would be great. Hear God's word as he's writing to Timothy and through Timothy to the church in Ephesus. Remember, Paul is in Rome, in prison, in chains, and uh, we're pretty sure this is the last letter that he wrote. And so these are important words. And he writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was of those two men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning, and having heard some harsh words in it, we listen carefully to see what you might be saying to each one of us. We ask that your spirit would work uh, through your word this morning, convicting, correcting, comforting, whatever you think that we need. We ask that you would use your word to bring that change about in our lives. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Unbelievable is what I thought to myself. Uh, this past Thursday, I had the, read the following article, which I'm going to read an excerpt to you. It was emailed to me by one of the elders. And as soon as I read it, I had scrapped the introduction for this message and inserted this instead. And uh, this is actually written by a sports writer uh, for CBS Sportsline. And I've edited it quite a bit because it's really long. And it, it's still long, but... It's about half of what it was. And um, he starts the article this way. About the time indoor fireworks started to explode near the pulpit of the not-to-be-named church in Nashville, Tennessee, and confetti rained down alongside red, white, and blue balloons, it occurred to me that thousands of people in attendance were in absolute ecstasy. Their team had won. That's because some megachurches now have more in common with sporting events than they do with the churches of my youth. For the past 15 years, as churches have waged metaphorical war with the surrounding society they see as increasingly immoral, licentious, and lewd, several megachurches have attempted to make churches relevant to a younger, media-saturated media society uh, that previously considered church stilted and out of date. And at times, the show is so overwhelming that you forget you're in a church at all. 
because these megachurches have embraced the rhythm of sporting events. Music rains down on the congregation during pauses in the action, just like the timeouts at a basketball game. And the crowd stands in cheers for the action in front of them. And many have discovered the surest way to motivate their attendees is to give them a rooting interest and make them part of the team. Even, even selling team jerseys uh, for the church. My mom and dad suggested I should attend a service. Their appeal finally won me over for the not-to-be-named church's 4th of July worship service, which bills itself as Nashville's largest indoor fireworks show. The phrase was so compelling, I accepted the invitation on the spot. Call it churchtainment, enter church, or whatever garbled conglomeration of church and entertainment you'd like. It's churchtastic. So I embarked on my first ever church game diary. And this was an evening service on Saturday, July 1st. When I first read this, I said, this can't be true. You know, he's just making it up. It's, uh, you know, just a sarcastic thing. But I went to this church's website, and it's all true. Um, it all happened, and they're very proud of it. The, uh, this is somebody who attends and has attended his whole life a much smaller church of less than 100. So he's not at all familiar with the modern Mega church. And so he writes and he says, not to be named church, which obviously I inserted. Uh, it's about a quarter mile from the interstate and occupies 20 acres. The current church structure itself is huge, about the size of a college basketball arena. The smaller original church sits in the shadow of the current church, like an outdated stadium that will soon be replaced for parking. Upon turning into the church parking lot, I came face to face with six men carrying large yellow sticks and directing cars where to park in the voluminous and rapidly filling lot. Yep, this church has parking lot attendants. Thankfully, when I parked, there was no parking fee. Upon exiting the car, I see an American flag billowing in front of the not-to-be-named church. The flag is huge. It's the largest I've ever seen. Joining my mom and dad for the walk-in, we gaze skyward. It's a pretty big flag, my dad says. Entering not-to-be-named church is the same as the equivalent of entering a stadium or arena, only you don't need tickets. There are greeters and giveaways. When asked if this was our first visit, my parents say that it's my first visit. So I was hustled to a table in the center where I provided a DVD entitled From Prison to Priesthood, The Testimony of Pastor So-and-So, who also goes unnamed. Then I bump into someone who is dressed like Uncle Sam, and Uncle Sam beams at me. I walk away. Popcorn, get your popcorn, calls the teenage boy. Cotton candy, calls the cheerful teenage girl. You need a Coke, asks another teenage boy, because in the South, every soda is a Coke. The refreshment line in the vestibule of the church is jammed. We entered the sanctuary. So large, there's seating for several thousand that ends in the back against billowing curtains. The pulpit is covered by a semicircled curtain, and there's several Broadway shows that would kill for this venue. The entire ceiling is covered with red, white, and blue balloons anchored in nets. And as moments before the service tick away, teenagers set up giant rubber bands and begin shooting T-shirts into the audience. A mad scramble ensues. Around us, T-shirts slam into the walls like soft mortar shells. Teenage boys wrestling one another for possession. We order some waters from the boys, drink them in our seats. 
At precisely 6 p.m. on Saturday evening, the curtains rise to reveal a 200-person choir swaying as they sing. Behind the choir is another is another American flag, which immediately becomes the second largest flag I've ever seen. Red, white, and blue bunning is draped all over the choir box as if the World Series has arrived. I expect the choir member to lean over the front row to snag a foul ball. Huge jumbotron televisions on either side of the choir. Pastor so-and-so confidently strides onto the stage and gives notice to the politicians in the audience. Uh, pointing out Tennessee's lieutenant governor in the front row and the candidate for Nashville's mayor in the back row. Each stands, waves to the crowd as the spotlight brightens them. Lights go out and the video screen comes down, shows a montage of church scenes accompanied by the song, What I Like About You. Man emerges from the back of the stage, sings the Star Spangled Banner. My mom leans over to me and says, someone should say, play ball. There is another soaring video montage featuring the voices of Presidents Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. Then the arena is led into a group sing of Old MacDonald Had a Farm. We're divided into four sections, the duck, the pig, the cow, and the chicken, and are instructed to make the sounds of our animal at the appropriate time. The sounds are quack, quack, oink, oink, moo, moo, cluck, cluck. Seated in the exact center, I'm unsure whether we are the oink, oink, or the moo, moo. So I inclined my head in the direction of my mother and said, are we pigs or cows? I'm not sure, she says. The crowd, minus mom and I, join in enthusiastically. Dad has no qualms. Moo moo, he says. <laughs> Pastor so-and-so returns to lead us through a litany of the decades beginning for some reason with 1950. Someone comes on stage and sings Jailhouse Rock. Introducing the 60s, we have three white women with black afros. This part I thought was really offensive. Come on stage and sing a reworked Supreme song entitled Saved, Healed, Delivered, Jesus. Then a bald white man emerges to sing I Feel Good by James Brown. 70s are represented by John Denver's Country Roads and Bill Withers' Lean On Me. And then in the 80s, the first chords of Sweet Home Alabama are played and the buzz in the arena rises to a crescendo. Doesn't matter where you are, if you play Sweet Home Alabama for a crowd of Southerners, the roof is coming off. It is the Southern National Anthem. There are several other songs and inappropriate skits, another video uh, montage, and then uh, the pastor returns, begins his message by saying, just give me 12 minutes. Don't ever believe that. Um, and then there will be a song and fireworks. We're now an hour and 25 minutes into the service. He enters a speech full of passion and fire and attacks an unnamed they who've replaced school prayer, 10 commandments, and want to replace the words under God from our pledge. And it sounds like a coach deriding the lack of respect his team received from an unnamed they and them. I check my cell phone to see what time it is, and it suddenly occurs to me it's 7.33, and I have yet to hear an actual Bible quote. 7.39, I'm realizing I'm watching the pastor on the jumbotron rather than watching him himself directly in the center of the pulpit. The Bible finally gets mentioned at 7.42, but without a reference or even having a copy of the book. In fact, I realize I haven't seen a single Bible or any other book since I entered the church. And then he finally finishes at 7.55, 30 minutes after he began speaking and 18 minutes longer than the time he requested. A 
Few people leave their seats and make for the exits. Dodging the crowd, my mom says. Later, while we wait 20 minutes for the parking lot attendants to let us leave, this makes sense. Then the fireworks begin. Sparks and colors fly into the air. For five minutes, celebration continues. Fireworks are loud, the children cry, smoke rises to the ceiling and mixes with the red, white, and blue balloons, which are suddenly a drop amidst a wave of confetti. We begin our exit caught in the onrush of humanity and the popping of balloons in the hands of overeager children. I'm left with this question. If God spoke to Moses today, would his words come from behind a spinning fireworks display instead of a burning bush? For all the world, I feel like I've just left a sporting event, only I'm not sure whether my team won or lost. I cut about half of that out. And I read that, and I thought, it's unbelievable. It wasn't a 4th of July celebration. This was a worship service that's billed as a worship service. It's on their website as a worship service. It just wasn't a whole lot of worship that happened. And I read that article as I was preparing this sermon, and right in the beginning of our text, you read, having a form of godliness, the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. If you have a worship service without Jesus... You have the form, you have the appearance. But if Christ isn't there, you don't have the power. And indeed, Paul warns Timothy at the beginning of today's passage, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people's will be love, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud and arrogant. And he's referring to the time period that had begun with the coming of Christ. He says, in the last days, it continued in Timothy's day, continues in our day as we await Christ's return. The last days and terrible times have been in effect for 2,000 years. And it's clear from the context, uh, because in verse 5, where Timothy is commanded in the present tense to avoid such people, they being the false leaders of the last days. And Paul is taking on the false teachers and he gives Timothy and us some things to look for to help us identify who's really preaching the gospel and who's not. And the first thing he tells us to watch out for is false love. False love. That should be the first blank in your outline. Look out for false love. There's an explicit description in the first four verses of the teachers who are abusing the Ephesian church with their false teaching. And at the same time, they realistically foreshadow so much of today's errant and sometimes crazy church leadership. Now, when Paul's writing about these people, he's not writing about the folks outside the church, although all would apply to them. He's writing about people inside the church. He's writing about false teachers. When he talks about lovers of self and being proud and arrogant, he's talking to, about people who are inside the church. And we can read this and say, oh, that sounds so much like our culture. But the sad fact is it sounds so much like the church culture too. Paul's description springs from an inversion, a reversal 
that has taken place in these false teachers' hearts, where the love of God has been replaced by love of self. You can see this by reading the opening and closing characteristics together. For will be, people will be lovers of self, the beginning of verse 2, rather than lovers of God, the end of verse 4. If you remember, Christ's great commandment from Matthew 22 is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's been turned upside down in the hearts of these false teachers because self-love reigns. Note that there are six tragic perversions in Paul's description. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, um, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, which we'll lump all together in the sort of without love category, not loving good, lovers of pleasure, and then finally rather than lovers of God. When love of God is replaced by love of self, all sorts of unloving characteristics inevitably follow as they become part of our lives. And Paul's description of the inversion divides, for the most part, into a brutal couplets or linked items. And look at them very briefly. But remember, it's not just Paul ranting and raving about uh, these false teachers in Ephesus. This is the inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit description of the false teachers as they were ministering amidst the intimacy of these churches in Ephesus. And it, it had turned into a giant interpersonal mess. And Paul is painting a tragic picture. Starts at verse two, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Apparently the false teachers are a narcissistic lot. They've switched their soul's gravity from God to themselves. In fact, they wrap their arms around themselves in a loving embrace. And their passion for self is matched by a love for money. Now, Paul already said at the end of 1 Timothy 1, uh, 1 Timothy 6, at the end of the first book, first letter he written to him, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So he's come back here. Love of money is a spiritual corollary to self-love. They both serve self. And then we see they're proud and arrogant. That is given to arrogant words and proud thoughts. And the psalmist cry in Psalm 34 that my soul makes its boast in the Lord, let the humble hear and be glad, is far uh, from these people's hearts and lips as the moon is from the earth. And then again, we see they're abusive and disobedient. The cartoon caricatures of disrespect, Beavis and Butthead, would have found soulmates in these false teachers. Abusive and disobedient. Ungrateful, unholy, which flow out of all those other characteristics. Ingratitude and disregard for the fundamental decencies of life are the natural result of putting self first. Then if false teachers were heartless and unappeasable, the NIV says they're without love and unforgiving. They're violating their most intimate relationships. They lack family affection. Those natural domestic affections are smothered. And they're unforgiving because they're merciless when offended. They're slanderous without self-control. Slandering tongues reside in bodies that couldn't control themselves. They were set on fire by hell, as James 3 bluntly warns us. James 3, 6 says, The tongue is a fire, 
a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. There aren't too many verses in the Bible tougher than that one. And then he says they're brutal and not loving good. They loathed authentic goodness. They're like savage uh, wild beasts. And then verse 4 brings the description of these false teachers to a blistering conclusion. It says they're treacherous and reckless. That word treacherous is used uh, as an adjective to describe Judas. Same Greek word to describe that disciple as a traitor in Luke 6. He says these people are like Judas. The second adjective, reckless, fits well for the false teachers will stop at nothing to get what they want. And they're swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure is a translation of two Greek words, uh, philos, love, and hedonai, pleasure, from which we get our English word hedonism. And they're controlled by pleasure, as are many in today's brave new world. And it's a devastating critique. There isn't a redemptive syllable in the entire uh, paragraph. How claustrophobic those churches must have become where the false teachers had done their work. Self-love suffocated sacred relationships between God's children. And remember, this brutal critique is not Paul's uh, ranting or morbid musing or just his anger coming forth or a skewed perspective of somebody who's in a dungeon and needs some fresh air. This is the Holy Spirit's description of spiritual reality in one of the fellowships of the early church. These are real people who Paul knew. I was reading this and said, you know, sort of like, enough's enough. And Paul doesn't stop. And I was like, please, how much worse can it get? But this issue is too important for his warning not to be taken seriously. So the second thing he tells, tells us to watch out for false love. And the second thing is false godliness. False godliness. It states a stark spiritual reality within the false teachers having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. They had the appearance of godliness in that they had the externals of religion in place. They were experts on the externals. They were the masters of extreme asceticism, which means they took a, a, subverted a life of simplicity to a life of harsh starkness. And Paul had said that about them earlier in 1 Timothy 4. He said, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And legalism is their forte. They carefully measured out everything for their followers, and they had a rule for everything. And Paul had warned about these people. 1 Timothy 1, he says, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Tragically, everything is empty because they denied the power of the gospel, as we see from Paul's critique of their lives. They're phonies. They have the form without the substance. And that's the last day a last day's reality for Timothy and for the Ephesian church. And like to say, oh, that's, you know, 
all back in the first century. But it can't say that. It still pertains in these last days in the church today. It is just as possible to be a member uh, and a teacher in the church of Ephesus and be lost, and it's just as possible to be just as lost in the church today. Unregenerate evangelicals are a growing reality among both clergy and congregations. One man earlier this year resigned from a large church uh, in the South, uh, made big waves in his denomination, and it was not ours. Because he says, I have a church of 3,000 baptized pagans. That's pretty tough. And he said, I just can't do it anymore. It is so easy to acquire the appearance of godliness, to describe, subscribe to all the right uh, Christian subculture expressions and customs, and yet be denying its power by the quality of our lives. So what does Paul say? Flee those leaders whose lives contradict the gospel. He says, avoid such people. Have nothing to do with them. And that's Paul's sole advice in this context. That's all that he tells them to do. He says, the lives of the leaders must demonstrate the power of the gospel, and if they don't, avoid them. And then finally, in this litany of misery, he tells us to watch out for false ministries, verses 6 through 9. False ministries. And this paragraph describes them somewhat derisively. He says, for among them are those who creep into households. And these households were apparently well known because the Greek says uh, literally the homes. They creep into the homes. They're probably the spacious homes of wealthy people. Excuse me where churches uh, often would meet there because they were big enough. And the verb literally suggests that they were creeping in under false pretenses. The idea is stealth. They're religious thieves. And then their disciples are described in very unique terms, saying the false teachers creep into households and capture weak women. This uh, label is pretty cynical. Literally says little women, and I don't think it's referring to stature or women in general, but particularly immature, childish women. Their consciences are burdened. They give ready ears to these imposters who promise to ease their guilt. Their unconfessed sin stood between them and God and make their reasoning faulty. And their sins, like a really bad case of the flu leaves them vulnerable to worse diseases. Their guilt and oppressive desires had turned them into a people who pretended to possess a lot of religious knowledge. It says women who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And in 2 Timothy, knowledge of the truth means repentance, faith and repentance and salvation. And the terrible reality is that they're learning and learning and learning and never coming to know Christ. 
And again, Paul had already warned Timothy about these people. Back to 1 Timothy 6. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And this last day's quest goes on today. Even within the church, there are some who devote their lives to the rediscovery of the mysteries of the heart or the mind or the spirit, all of which are euphemisms for various Eastern religions. Or the discovery of the numerical key to prophecy as in the bestseller, The Bible Code. Or they look for a shortcut to spirituality in the prayer of Jabez, which usually means the shortcut to getting whatever it is that I want, but make it look spiritual. Or what the end times really will be like, not according to the scriptures, but the popular novels left behind. A wonderful combination of bad writing with even worse theology. Not to mention everyone's favorite introduction to medieval conspiracy theories wrapped in Gnosticism, the Da Vinci Code. And we get wrapped up in that stuff. I think the Da Vinci Code's a little different because that directly attacked Christianity. So we have to respond to it. But we don't have to be obsessed by it. But they're put off by the truth of the gospel because they find that whole conviction of sin thing and the whole repentance thing all too guilt-inducing. So in all their learning, they never become free. And Paul frames this monumental futility of these false teachers with a telling allusion to the Egyptian sorcerers who opposed Moses before Pharaoh. Now, most people know that from the movie The Prince of Egypt. Um, But it refers back to a real story in Exodus 7. And he says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Janus and Jambres are not mentioned by name in Exodus 7. They're not mentioned in the Bible at all by name except for here. But they are mentioned in numerous Jewish writings and even uh, secular pagan historians uh, mention them by name uh, quite a bit. There's quite a number of references. And they're magicians, sorcerers in Pharaoh's court, who when Moses appeared before Pharaoh and threw down Aaron's rod and it turned into a snake, they cast their rods down and they likewise became snakes. But then Aaron's rod swallowed their snakes. And at every turn, they opposed Moses. If you remember in the movie, The Prince of Egypt, they sang the song to Moses, you're playing with the big boys now. That's the way they looked at themselves. And Paul is comparing the false teachers in Ephesus to those sorcerers. And he says, these false teachers are the same kind of people. They oppose the truth just as those sorcerers opposed Moses and the truth of his message. Their, Their magician's rods look just like Aaron's. By analogy, today, there are people in the church The same language of the Gospels is used by false teachers, but with different meanings. They take those same words that have great meaning and value to us, words like redemption and salvation and justification and conversion. And they use the same words, but have totally different meanings for them. And I think it's one of the greatest dangers 
in uh, nominal liberal Christianity today. They use the same words but mean entirely different things and it's very confusing to most people. We think when we know what somebody's talking about when they use the word uh, conversion. And their commands sound like God's commands and they have the same religious paraphernalia. You know, they wear the same clothes, same Bible, say the same creeds, use the same words in their prayers as we use in our prayers. But they enslave people Paul says they remain men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the truth. And it's all been so dark. But then Paul closes his thought with an encouraging word to Timothy. And he's really going to sort of switch gears in the next passage, but you'll have to wait till next week till we get there. He's going to switch from the negative to the positive. So the, the good stuff is coming. But he says, they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all as it was of those two men, the Egyptian sorcerers. He says, the folly of Janus and Jambres became evident when they couldn't match the power of Moses, when they couldn't duplicate all of his miracles. And everyone saw what they taught was false and they shouldn't be followed. And Paul says, the same thing happens to the false teachers. And that's an important word to Timothy. You can only see these guys growing success. He's to understand that these men can compete only for so long and then their folly would become evident to all. And I think it's still true today. There are places where lies seem to be winning, where preachers deny Christ's incarnation, resurrection, preach another gospel, where false teachers promise a new age. And Paul says they won't last. Their folly will be clear to everyone. What we must especially watch for in our own lives is the inversion of love where we become the lovers of self rather than lovers of God, where we have the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And when that happens and the great commandments to love the Lord get flipped on their head, when we become lovers of self rather than lovers of God, then this whole withering passage just sorts of slide right past our souls. And all of this is well and good to know, but it's a whole lot harder to figure out what to do about it. But other than telling us how to recognize it, the only thing Paul tells us to do is avoid such people. And I think that's because after telling us what to watch out for, self-love and false godliness and ministering to others in order to make ourselves look good, one of his real concerns is being able to spot those same sins in ourselves. That's because we're just as susceptible, especially those of us who teach a lot, just like these false teachers, to fall in the trap of trading one love for another. And these truths are crucial in these last days because so many evangelicals have become uh, imperceptibly lovers of themselves. James Davidson Hunter is a professor at UVA. He's a, a Christian sociologist, and he's done a number of studies of the Christian church, particularly among college-age Christians. And he wrote a landmark book in the late 80s called Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation. And uh, he said, the fascination with self has become a well-established cultural feature of evangelicalism in the latter part of the 20th century, not simply a passing fashion among the young, younger generation. And the shift of gravity from God to self 
has to be resisted with all that we have. The great commandment is not going to change. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Significantly, some 30 years later, after this letter was written, the Apostle John penned the book of Revelation, and he recorded these words to the same Ephesian church that Timothy served. In Revelation 2, he wrote to the same church, but I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's a church that was planted by the Apostle Paul. It was pastored by Timothy. It's not like they didn't have any good teaching. And they, in time, strayed from the gospel. You really think it couldn't happen to us, or me, or you, or that Potomac Hills couldn't stray, or that the PCA couldn't stray? Don't think that for a minute. A few years ago, I coached youth basketball with another guy, and he was kind of loud, but he's a pretty good coach. He was originally from the Boston area, and he had that great accent. And so we got along okay. We were both Red Sox fans. That was good, even though we were coaching basketball. But he regularly said something that has always stuck with me, and I've used countless times in all the other sports I've coached. He would get the team together, um, you know, at the start of the fourth quarter uh, in a game, and he would say, it's easy to lose. It's hard to win. You really have to stick with it to win. Well, they usually said it's had to win. And I would ask him, I said, how hard is it? He said, it's wicked hard. <laughs> so he had that great accent. But he would say that because basketball games are usually won or lost in the fourth quarter. And so he would say that over and over again. It's easy to lose. It's hard to win. And I think transferring that to the church I would say something similar. It's easy to miss the gospel. Doesn't take a lot of effort to miss the gospel. It's hard to believe. It's hard to preach. Brian Chappell is one of, considered one of the best preachers in our denomination, president of Covenant Seminary, and, and I asked him, uh, we we're at General Assembly, Brian, you still preaching the gospel? Yeah, but it's hard. You really have to stick with it to believe. Paul says these last days, this is the fourth quarter of church history. It's easy to miss the gospel. It's hard to believe. And without even realizing it, could you be trading one love for another? Perhaps we should pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. This can become so comfortable, so easy, that we start drifting away and we don't even notice it. We stop praying, we stop reading your word, we get busy, life is coming at us from all different directions. And we lose our ability to discern the truth of your word from falsehood and eventually we become a church where you can't even find a Bible Heavenly Father keep us from that sharpen our hearts and our minds give us 
excuse me, give us discernment. Father, it's easy for us to miss the gospel. It's hard to believe. We have to stick with it. We have to open the Bible again when we're tired and we don't want to. And our natural tendencies, the flesh, leads us to a soft couch rather than spend any more time with you. So we need your spirit to work in us. Father, help us as we prepare to come to your table this morning. Help us to repent of our false godliness, of any false love, of any effort we do just trying to make ourselves look good. Father, bring us to repentance, then bring us to your table that we might receive your grace. We ask that you would do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.